0: You're listening to a Bespoken Media production This is my family, mental illness and me I'm Dr. Pamela Jenkins I, like so many people, grew up with a parent with a mental illness My mum, Irene, had schizoaffective disorder This had a profound effect on my childhood and continues to impact my life, even today this podcast is made by the charity Our Time. In each episode, a different guest will share their own experience of growing up with a family member or family members living with mental illness. I really hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. We do explore some difficult and potentially triggering memories throughout the series, so there's advice and links to support in the show notes. Please, please do speak to someone if you're affected by anything raised in the episodes. In this episode, I'm speaking to John Rees, whose own experience of growing up with a parent with mental illness and own mental health challenges led him to a career in therapeutic photography.
1: Hi, I'm John Rees. I'm a photographer, an artist, and I run therapeutic photography workshops.
0: Hi, John. And thank you so much for being here. I guess, first of all, as I understand it, you, both your parents lived with mental illness at some point. Yeah. And I guess I just want to open it up to you, really, and hear what your recollections of that are. I mean, when when were they first diagnosed? When did they experience it?
1: Um, I was born into it, really. Yeah, my dad had bipolar and, um, yeah, my mum always says, you know, it was a bad idea to have a second child because, you know, by the time I was born, you know, things were pretty challenging at home. Um, and, yeah, so so that was the primary sort of um, experience of, of mental illness in the family was my dad. But obviously the effect on my mum was um, one of, you know, her being stressed a lot tired a lot and, and shut down sort of mentally shut down um so yeah so both parents yeah um from my birth really
0: when do you first remember any incidents or appearance of the mental illness as a child
1: so i i I didn't understand basically at the time, but you know, what, what would happen was that um, we would have to leave the house um, sometimes urgently. Um, So we'd go to stay with my grandparents in the middle of the night, we'd sort of be woken up and, and and head off because things are really bad. Or my dad would go missing um, for weeks. Sometimes we'd be, uh, tried to take his own life and he'd be in hospital but we didn't you know it, my mum tried to protect us from the truth I guess by just kind of being vague around it all and so yeah it was very confusing and I suppose my my first sort of understanding of my dad's illness and also he's he was an addict um, you know was that I was to learn that, not to know what to expect. Do you know what I mean? It was to, to kind of have this this constant sense of like anything could happen when you walk in the door. You know, you might get a warm greeting and, you know, or it might be chaos. Um, you know, people might be happy and, and buoyant or they might be completely shut down um, or in bed or, you know. So, Yeah, there was that just, um, what's the word? Just um, complete lack of of sort of certainty about, about what you'd find or what you'd be met with, yeah.
0: How do you recall feeling about that? Did that have any impact on you and your own well-being?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think I quite early started to sort of assume that I had some responsibility. So, you know, I felt that I had a responsibility yeah. to, to, not, to not cause any more problems, to kind of stay quiet, to not ask for, for stuff, to not ask for what I wanted or needed or, or complain about anything. And, yeah, the way I sort of dealt with it was, was kind of to just try not to be noticed Really,
0: And you said that your mum was vague with how they spoke to you about your dad's mental illness. What did your mum say? Did they say dad was poorly at all or how was it described to you?
1: Do you know, I don't really remember there being an explanation. It was just not spoken about. Mm -hmm. You know, and the only thing that I do remember is being asked not to talk about it outside of the house. Oh. So, you know, there was there was very much a kind of, you know, what goes on in the house or what goes on, you know, in the family is kept in the family. So, but there wasn't really an explanation. You, you know, I think I recall, you know, I, I do remember him being taken out of the house in the ambulance, but you know, by paramedics and stuff like that. And, you know, a mum just saying, you know, he's not well. So there was some kind of understanding of him not being well, but other than that, um, yeah, it, was, it just wasn't spoken about, and it wasn't. It was the expectation was you didn't speak about it.
0: Gosh, so hugely stigmatised. Mm-hmm. And so, does that mean then, if 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 your mum didn't want you to speak about it out with the family, how was your dad within the community? Did he have much involvement? In your life outside of the home, and would people have been witness to any presentation of his symptoms?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, the neighbours would have seen him being taken away in ambulances, um, being mm-hmm. brought home by the police. Um, yeah, and you know, he was he spent most of his time in the pub, so um, you know that community knew him and, and, and mm-hmm. understood you know his struggles to some extent. And he used to walk a lot. So he used to, you know, once the pub shut he'd go walking and um, he would talk to, you know, whoever is was about late at night. Um, So, yeah, he was kind of known and, and, you know, in many ways kind of um, admired and and stuff. But, um, yeah, people would have known that there was something not right.
0: Yeah. What sort of person was he, would you say, if you had to describe him? Um
1: I mean to me, I mean there are two different versions I guess of you know what, what he was like there's the version that people tell me about and then but you know to me he was unpredictable, frightening and um yeah, that I guess that that was that was it to me. I didn't have much connection to him, if I'm honest. What people tell me is that he was a a man's man, um, whatever that means. Um, He (laughs) loved to debate. Um, He was very left-wing, bordering on being a communist, was very politically engaged, loved to debate politics with anyone that would... um, joining in that he, you know, was sort of life and soul of the party, but the party was never at home. Do you know what I mean? Mm,
0: yeah. <laughs> so,
1: um, yeah, I didn't really witness that. Uh, um, but yeah, that's that's what I'm told.
0: Did you have much of a relationship with him? Would you no. say you were close? No?
1: No, not at all. He took, no. you know, that I. he took me to a, a football match once and sort of, you know, that was the start of my relationship with a football team but well, that was once um other than that i can't really remember spending much time with him to be honest yeah so.
0: that's it's interesting that's not an unusual thing what you were saying before about the different versions of a person and learning yeah. from others how yeah. you you know what type of person your dad was and what type of man he was and certainly my mother was the life and soul of the party. That's interesting. You use that phrase. I I think that's quite common as well. Um, she was a great social person I, mm. by all accounts, and and I I remember some of that. But it's it's those unpredictable elements that you see within the home that you 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 almost don't know which version of the person is the real one and which one, like you say, you're going to get. Exactly. I don't know how you feel about this, but. Did you ever see glimpses of that person? The one that you hear about from others?
1: I guess so. Yeah, the, the one memory that comes to mind is um, him coming back. So um, with his sort of bipolar you used to have times um, where he was full of ideas and full of energy and full of kind of um, you know, plans. Um, most of this has come from my mum, you know, telling me in, in retrospect after he died. But I remember him coming back from the pub with a deep sea diver's helmet with some plan to to become a deep sea <laughs> diver. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> wow. And I was, you know, and I was really sort of um, impressed and believed, you know, that that's what was going to happen. But of course, you know, my mum said that he would, you know, he would get a new hobby or he'd, he'd, he'd get a new interest and it'd be, you know, he was going to. Solve all the world's problems with this new direction he was going in, and then he would hit a depression, and you know everything just stayed. And so this deep sea diver's helmet stayed in the cupboard under the stairs for years. You know, it's like mm. a symbol of one of those, one of those kind of uh um, sort of manic moments yeah.
0: when he was, I guess, high in a sort of high space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting that your mum, you know. Or parents, it's not just your mum. Parents, when when there is a, another parent experiencing that, choose not to explain why it is happening. I wonder what difference that would have made to you if, if the deep-sea diver's helmet were somehow contextualised within what was going on in his own head. Mm. It's difficult when you're dealing with a really young child, I suppose. Yeah. How do you explain that?
1: I don't know. I mean, yeah, so... You know, I have two kids now and my oldest son is neurodivergent and we need to explain to his younger brother, Mm -hmm. you know, in in ways that he understands, you know, how his brain works differently and stuff. So I think we can. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it was a different, it was a different time. It was the 1970s.
0: Yeah. And also, I guess it's interesting with neurodivergency, there's good dialogue around it and Yet certain mental illnesses still remain highly stigmatized. It's a real shame. I would really like to see a generation that grows up be able to talk about mental illness in the same way that we mm. seem to be more open now and talking more about neurodivergency. And so how how old were you when your dad died?
1: Eight. Gosh.
0: And I mean, I know it's it's difficult, so um, but would you be Open to telling me a wee bit about what happened and, and I guess how much you knew about yeah. it at the time? Yeah,
1: sure. I mean, I knew nothing about it at the time. So, um, what happened was we woke up one morning and I remember that, you know, I remember remembering it, I guess, but I, you know, I remember it clearly sort of me and my sister at the top of the stairs and realizing there were lots of people in the house and thinking, oh, this is interesting. This is exciting. You know, all the sort of family had turned up for, you know, out of the blue. And all you know, sitting in a, in the living room, chain smoking, talking, and trying to hear what was going on, you know, and not you know, and not managing to, and then being brought in one by one to be told that dad had died, and that was it. There was never an explanation. We didn't go to the funeral. We never um, got any other kind of. Um, I went to school the same day, um, and I remember kind of just actually feeling relief was all I could manage. I didn't, you know, I was very young. So I, you know, I was like, oh, so, you know, at midnight, because I was insomniac as well when I was a kid. So I used to be lying there in bed sort of waiting for the chaos to start at sort of midnight. And um, and I, th- and I remember feeling like oh, my shoulders dropping, like that's not gonna happen anymore. And then, yeah, went to school. And, um, I remember the teacher being really sort of, um, kind and empathetic and, you know, and I, I'm just thinking, what's this about? I don't really, you know, I don't, He didn't really talk about him after that for many years. So I didn't know what happened. If people asked me, I made up a story. I said he died of lung cancer. I,
0: yeah.
1: Um, cause I didn't know. And because my mum was grieving so much and became so shut down afterwards. I didn't want to bother her. You know, again, I felt responsible for her feelings. I felt like, you know, even if I didn't cause them, it was my responsibility not to make them worse. You know, it was, you know, and so I I just didn't ask, I guess, you know. And I, yeah, so we, I didn't find out what happened till I was 23 um, when my sister went through the... The newspaper records in the local library and found an article about it and yeah so it's really bizarre
0: <laughs> oh gosh so it wasn't um, that they waited until you were older to tell you you found out you had to find no. out yourselves <laughs> yeah. wow
1: yeah it was very strange um yeah so what happened was and i've spoken with my mum about it since uh, um but so what happened was um he came back from the pub, but apparently wasn't that drunk. Um, said he was going for a walk. Um, went for a walk around uh, in a in a circle they used to walk when where we used to live, and was found by the police, um, who said they thought he was drunk and and so arrested him, put him in a police cell, and he died in the police cell. So we don't know if it was. Uh, an attempt to take his own life because he he had a high um, amount of his medication in mm-hmm. his blood, which he used to do sometimes take overdoses of, but also he used to take um, recreationally, I suppose. You know, yeah. um, so we don't know whether it was a uh, suicide attempt or, or just a, an accident or overdose or what. But yeah, so that that was um,
0: gosh. And yeah,
1: so there was a kind of inquest and stuff, which is why it was in the paper. Yeah, um, but it's interesting, yeah, that you know other people around in the wider sort of family would have known about that, but nobody ever, <laughs> nobody ever spoke to us, and we didn't, we didn't ask. It's really odd when I think about it.
0: And so, when did you ask or find out about your dad having a mental illness, or is that something? that was a conclusion you came to yourselves as well or I
1: think as a teenager I must have got a sense of that I knew that he had a problem with alcohol by then because in my teens I started to drink and my mum you know and I started to drink in an unhealthy way you know it was kind of apparent that this was not um just a bit of experimentation you know uh, and my mum threw some literature at me from a, a a well-known 12-step fellowship and said, you know, I'm not going through this again. I've been through it once. So I got that sense then that, oh, my dad oh. must, yeah. You know, but And I kind of knew oh. that he was always in the pub because we were always trying to get him out of the pub. And that was often quite a distressing kind of um, yeah. scene of my mum going into the pub with us, you know, one in each hand, me and my sister trying to... Cokes him out. But, um, so, yes. Oh, that's how So, long. I got a sense of, of that. But um, the bipolar, I honestly can't remember when I first got an understanding of, of, of that. Um, she must have, yeah, something must have been said at some point during that, you know, after he died, between him dying and um, finding out about how he died.
0: There is this strange. As, as you're talking there, I'm wondering the same thing. And there is this maybe gradual recognition somehow that Mm. happens as you get older and you become more aware of what mental illnesses are and what different forms they take. And then you sort of start to piece it together a little bit. The difficulty is when just because you're a child doesn't mean that you aren't aware of all of these things, just because, you know, maybe you might not be able at that age to directly piece it together. It doesn't mean you're not aware that these things mm. are going on. Yeah. And so when you're left in the dark, that's a really difficult place to be. And it's interesting hearing you say that when you were drinking, your drinking was problematic, became problematic as a teenager. And your mother said, I can't go through yeah. this again. I mean, y- you previously said that you felt a responsibility not to make things more difficult mm. for her. How did that feel for you hearing yeah, that? She- I remember
1: it really well, and I and I felt terrible. I felt absolute, you know, responsibility again for for her feelings, but I also felt completely trapped in the knowledge that you know this was probably going to become a problem for me. But it was the solution to how I, you know, it for me at the time, it was the solution mm-hmm. to my own, um, you know emotional and mental difficulties so yeah it was a real kind of um I, yeah I remember feeling really angry for, not at my mum but just at, you know more at my dad really it's like oh you've passed this on to yeah. me but you're not here to show me how to navigate it or what to do just do so I mean yeah um,
0: yeah was your sister involved in supporting you and, and was your mum able to support you with it uh, as well?
1: Not at all. No. They don't they yeah. My mm. family have never had the uh the tools. They've never been equipped <laughs> to um to support me. Um yeah, if I'm honest. And that, yeah, it feels really you know, I feel a kind of sense of betrayal saying some of this stuff, but it's the truth. I wouldn't ne- you know, I wouldn't, you know, I have gone to my family for support, but I usually find out you know quite soon that it it doesn't yeah. the the right support doesn't come and you know so I've learned yeah. as an adult to to not come to my family for support um yeah yeah no there was you know mostly the attitude would be you know you just you just need to do better basically you know
0: yeah, yeah. that's not something to feel guilty about I would think yeah. it's Different people, I think I've learned as well over the years of different capacities for supporting with different yeah. elements and different yeah. things. And yeah, it was something I worried about um with this series, actually, doing the podcast because I went to live with my aunt and uncle and my cousins, and I went to see my mom at weekends. and, you know, and i i I worried that even just doing this series was in some way. betrayal but actually it's not it's in a funny kind of way it's not about them it's about you and it's about you exploring and experiencing and sharing what's happened to you and the impact it had on you so you know it's it's not passing any judgment or comment on anybody Mm. else it's shining the light on the people that were sort of forgotten in the sense of the mental illness in the first place not what happened around it so I don't think that that's any kind of betrayal and it's good to talk about it your mum you said after your father died your mum sort of also took a bit of a dip maybe is a bit euphemistic (laughs) but her her mental health also suffered yeah
1: of course I mean yeah my mum has had a you know she's had a really tough sort of journey really you know through throughout and uh and I think, you know, she before he died, she was exhausted all the time because she could never she could never go to bed until he was asleep because she was too worried about what he would do or, you know, potentially kind of, you know, so um yeah, so she was always exhausted and she was the sole carer of because he didn't really do anything. So, you know, and also, you know, financially he was a bit Um, unpredictable so yeah so she was exhausted anyway and then I think you know when he did die she was grieving and was also exhausted and so you know she used to take herself to bed you know with a migraine or whatever some days and and you'd sort of fend for yourself or, you know, I mean, she did her absolute best, don't get me wrong, you know what I mean? But, yeah, mm-hmm. she, she was struggling and, um, you know, her she wouldn't talk about what she was struggling with. She'd just say, I'm tired. So, you know, you okay, mum, I'm tired, you know, and that uh, sort of was like, okay, mum's tired, how can we, you know, or me anyway, I speak for myself, you know, yeah. how can I not add to her tiredness, how can I, you know. make life um you know as uh, as gentle as possible for her you know regarding me yeah and my sister my sister was a bit more kind of um demanding and so I let her demand the attention and you know so she was going through some really difficult stuff as well and um so I was just like there's no space for me do you know what I mean (laughs) in a sense of you know I just gotta get on with it and that yeah um, that was the way it was
0: a huge amount of responsibility for a young child and also what a mature way to think and behave I mean Mm. that is really quite incredible to I guess put yourself a wee bit in the shadows and
1: I guess yeah I hadn't really thought about it like that and the other thing that I I remember was being told, "Well, you're the man of the house now," oh, <laughs> and I was just like, "I'm, I'm eight. Oh yeah, God. it was a lot of responsibility when I look at it now.
0: So later on, so y- when you were a teenager, then it started to come out sideways with the with the drinking. Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, lots of different ways, really. I mean, I, d- you know, what I I found, and I think you know, my my initial kind of withdrawal to protect myself, you know, in the house, Um, like be playing quietly in a corner and not really get involved with the adults. And, you know, that translated into like quite a bad social anxiety. Mm -hmm. So I had a diagnosis of dyspraxia as well. So I sort of struggled with certain things at school, which I didn't understand, felt really anxious in social situations, didn't know how to navigate them so alcohol was a solution to that you know it's mm-hmm. just like yeah just drink a bottle of vodka before the school disco the chains come off you know yeah. for a short period of time and and I feel free and and then Obviously, there are consequences to that as a 13-year-old. You know, it, it's not socially acceptable and, you know, and, uh, and whatnot. And, um, yeah, and it's not safe. And, it, you know, it makes me really sad now to think about that. But, yeah, it was, you know, I just thought I'm going to do that as often as I can, really. Yeah. It's, that's the answer.
0: And what transpired after that for you then, after sort of your high school years? Yeah.
1: Um, I sort of, I spent 20 years from sort of 13 sort of slowly getting lost in in addiction, my own struggles with mental illness. Um, Yeah, so in in and out of mental health services, um, always sort of on the edge of uh, kind of becoming homeless and whatnot. And eventually, yeah. Um, ended up, uh, rough sleeping. Yeah. yeah.
0: And where were your family at this point? Had you withdrawn again, you know, taking yourself away or were they?
1: Um, my mum had, um, told me I wasn't welcome anymore. That, that was kind of, yeah. So I, I'd gone back to my mum's for a final time. On a condition that I wouldn't drink and then did drink obviously because mm. I was an alcoholic. <laughs> like yeah. there's no conditions, we're not gonna not gonna sort this problem out. Yeah. And uh and then she said, You've gotta go and you know, I'm really sorry, but I can't, you know, I can't have you. Yeah. And uh so yeah, that's kind of that was the start of sort of um a rock bottom, if you like, street mm-hmm. homelessness and Kind of homeless hostels and um, class A drugs and all kinds of chaos.
0: It's so sad. So often, people who are in these situations are experiencing mental health problems and mental illness. And mm-hmm. how did you pull yourself out of that? Um,
1: I was supported out of it. Really, I mean, I yeah, it was. I, I guess you know something had to come from me in a sense of you know a little light came on at some point, And I mean, a real flicker of a light came on at some point. It was like, maybe there's some life left in me. Maybe I could, you know, get myself out of this situation. But and then, and then this sort of help started to come a bit and, and, um, and I took it. So yeah, eventually I got bundled into a, a detox and, um, and, and then a rehab uh, and then a sort of halfway house. And, you know, and so, yeah, that's so kind of part two of my life start, sort of started from there at age 34, really. Um, yeah.
0: That's incredibly impressive. That takes such a, a lot of strength. I can't ima- imagine that's. I mean, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, I think, I think. It's the it's the it's the sort of power of desperation, really. You know, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. It's that's what it is, you know. And the kindness and love of other people. If yeah. if I I got had to get desperate enough to accept that everything had to change, and then be open to the help that was an offer. And the, and the, you know one of the things, one of the key messages in our family is it's shameful to ask for help. You know, it's absolutely, have you no shame? You know, this kind Mm -hmm. of idea of, you know, letting people know that you're vulnerable, letting people know that, you know, (laughs) you can't do it on your own, you know, it was really sort of deeply ingrained in me. So that surrender, if you like, of like, actually, you know what, I'm really in trouble here. It's really hard to come to because there was another voice in me going, but you can sort this out on your own. You have to do it on your own.
0: Yeah. You know?
1: It's too shameful to, to ask for help. But thank God, you know, that I I was um, able to move, you know, to that point where I was like, you know what, <laughs> there's no way I can do this. I'd be dead if I'd continue to try and do it on my own. There's yeah. no doubt, you know. And so, yeah, so that it was, yeah, the gift the gift of desperation and lots of, kindness and love from other people really
0: and how amazing to then move into as you said second stage in your life where you are able to ask for help and Mm. and teach your children to ask for help when they need it that's amazing Yeah. yeah this might be a wee bit of a difficult one but how much of that difficult period for you um would you Attribute to the experience that you had as a child.
1: Yeah, I mean, a big role. It's hard to it's hard to quantify. Yeah, you know, the sort of argument between sort of nature and nurture. You know, like, it, yeah, is this just? You know, was I? Is my DNA kind of written my my story before anything happened? You know, was I likely to struggle with with depression and? Mm-hmm anxiety and, uh, you know, various other things, um, psychosis at times, you know, was that always going to happen anyway? You know, I'm definitely sort of, you know, wired in some way to, when I find something that makes me feel nice, want to do it continuously. <laughs> <laughs> like that hasn't gone away. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Despite all the work. I mean, I don't, you know, I, it's much more kind of manageable and, yeah. and less and – less, um, uh less has less of an impact on my life. But yeah, and how much of it is down to you know the trauma and the mm-hmm. and the you know and the messages. I mean I've been I've been seeing the same psychiatrist for um oh therapist not psychiatrist the same therapist for um about six years like and we're still unraveling the messages from childhood. We're yeah. still, you know and, you know, and I've done loads of other work around, you know, and i continue to, con- you know, to look and unpick and, and and sort of try and separate myself from those messages and those experiences because yeah. they can still affect the decisions I make today. I could leave this, you know, this interview now, I'll go off and make decisions based on those messages. Yeah. You know, and um, so yeah, it's massive. It's you yeah, know, it's everything really. Those early experiences on both sides of my family is a lot of mental illness mm-hmm. and a lot of addiction. You know, schizophrenia. You know, who's I, I don't know. I could have had the perfect childhood and still yeah. struggled. I don't know. Yeah. It's really hard to say. Yeah,
0: I think um, for me, the most important thing is actually the talking, and even just hearing you say there, you're still unpicking. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's nature or nurture, if these. If these issues and these feelings and and illnesses, whatever it is, are not being talked about and people don't have the space to explore them and explore their feelings, then I think that's where a lot of the problem lives, really, in the stigma yeah. and the shame. I'm really a big advocate of talking, not just because I'm a blether generally, but because I mean talking about feelings and, and, and what's yeah. happening.
1: Yeah, and I think there's still a massive stigma stigma with men as well you know that the work yeah. that I do now is you know I, I support people to explore trauma and memories and stuff through photography and when I put those groups out to the public to join or to different you know it's 95 percent women that come forward you know oh really because yeah and, and uh. I you know and I think there's still you know just this barrier to men Exploring and and talking about you know their experiences and yeah, there's still you know despite all the advancements in kind of society and and gender roles and mm-hmm. everything else, there's still this kind of underlying idea that men need to be strong and just get on with it and you know and and kind of fix it and yeah. bring in the money and you know shut up.
0: So how did you get to? I have to say, I'm very intrigued by. The photography therapy and I think it is just mm. the most wonderful idea how did you come to that it's absolutely brilliant
1: so when I when I got off the streets and when I started to address my mental health and stuff that you know I I was left with a big sort of hole in my life where alcohol and drugs used to be and it was mm-hmm. like you know what do I do who am I you know what what where do I fit into the world, etc.? And um and I used to walk a lot and so I just yeah, you know, I used to walk across London. One of the organizations that was supporting me, they gave me a really basic digital camera. Um, because I was doing a sponsored walk and and I was starting to photograph my walks using this camera. And I found it really beneficial for me. It used to sort of really bring me into the moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had all these worries and fears and regrets and it just kind of you know just brought me into the world and you know i was looking at the colors and the light and the lines and you know i was like this is really helpful for me and then a bit further along i started to use it to explore more specific experiences so I, i ended up at art school and while i was there i was kind of exploring some memories one of them being my dad's last walk so i i retraced his footsteps and photographed that walk
0: wow. and what i
1: found was that it really helped me to get in touch with how he must have experienced that you know the real empathy for him being a young man he was lost he was really unwell who was you know torn he was struggling and, you know, to leave his family, whatever his decision was, you know, to abandon his family in in, in some ways, you know, must have been really distressing. And must have, you know. yeah. So it was like for the first time doing this photographic exercise, I really got in touch with empathy for him. Um, and I thought, well, there's really something in this. So fast forward a few years into lockdown and I was doing a job which I was finding really difficult. My mental health was really really kind of um, taking a battering from doing this job in lockdown at home, you know mm-hmm. sitting here and, um, and I thought well what could, you know if the world's changed and you know what can I do instead? Um, so I, I sort of turned to photography again and I came up with the idea of a course which might help others in the way that it helped me. And so I started testing it out, and then I did some training, and and then developed a course, and and kind of went from there. And, wow. Yeah, one of the groups that I work with is uh, people that are currently homeless, um, and so we go out together once a week and, and take some photos. And you know, for that hour that we're out, we're not a group of of homeless people. We, you know, we're a we're a group of photographers. Yeah. You know, and it's just that kind of um, you know, that stepping out of you know your all the rubbish that you've you know got yeah. to worry about and you know into just you know the present moment and, yeah and we're going to have an exhibition soon of, of their yeah. photographs
0: what an incredible in,
1: in sharon cross station maybe, oh wow talking about <laughs>
0: that's me oh i want to see yeah. that what an incredible <laughs> thing to do and you know you can be you spoke about the support that pulled you out and the hope that pulled you out you know mm. you potentially and taking part in that could be that for other people what an amazing
1: amazing thing to do well there's definitely you know i mean i completely sort of believe in in a model of you know having people with lived experience help people you know because Yeah. yeah it just for me if if i had a counselor in rehab that wasn't an addict i knew straight away and i'd be like you know i could sort of I sort of you know manipulate and, and get my you know yeah. self through this but you know if I if I had somebody had been where I'd been yeah it's like a completely different relationship I was like okay I'm going to listen to you <laughs> yeah. because you've been there nothing's getting past them and so yeah I really believe in that finding ways to use our unique sort of lived experience to to support others that are going through it I think that you know that's the model for for everything it's got to be part of the solution yeah. anyway
0: i completely agree yeah completely agree you could do a course um or the you know the photography therapy with children of uh parents with a mental illness to help them explore right. their feelings about it so they're talking about it
1: that's in discussion at the moment with um our time oh. the charity yeah
0: I yeah, think that's it. We're that, talking about that. That would be brilliant. And do mm. you talk to your own children about your own experiences and, and the past?
1: I mean, my my kids are six and five, so.
0: wait, <laughs> wee for it's, that. Yeah,
1: yeah, they're a <laughs> bit, um, but I will, there's no doubt. And they know, you know, they, they know enough that, you know, Mummy and daddy need to take care of themselves in certain ways yeah and you know and we bring what we've learned on our own journeys my partner and i you know to our parenting you know in the sense that you know we yeah yeah we really encourage them to talk we really encourage them to accept themselves and and you know their differences and everything else so yeah, yeah. I, I hope it's you know, it's taught us to be good parents. Well, I know it has. You know,
0: absolutely. And the person yeah. that you are is very. It's amazing. I think hearing your story, it would be so easy to be somebody who was resentful, but from a very young age, you've been very empathetic. And I think that is an absolutely incredible character that you have. It's you are. It's very impressive.
1: Thank you. Um, I had to work hard at letting go of the resentment. So, so it wasn't <laughs>
0: but even 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 having the awareness to do that and wanting to do yeah. that is a real uh, defining part of somebody's character. And I think that that takes real strength and that's amazing. And you wouldn't have that without your experience. In our house, I am a, I'm such a stickler for mental health language, and I get a little, I get a bit annoying about it because I I really dislike when derogatory mental health words are used, especially with kids. So when you hear people saying, oh, that's, you know, she's a psycho or, you know, that what a lunatic. It just drives me wild. And our two are really funny. We've got two boys and it's, they're like swear words in this house. So whenever we're out or we're watching something and then, and bad mental health language is used in a way to sort of, you know, speak badly about somebody, they turn around as if someone's just said the F word. They're like, oh my yeah, goodness, yeah. did you hear that?
1: That's brilliant. Yeah. And that's how change happens, you know. Yeah. In, in, you know, in our, in the, yeah, the relationships of the people around us, you know, we can, you know, we can implement these small kind of changes in language and ideas that it's ripple out. Really
0: genuinely makes me sad when I think about my mum's mental illness and the idea that people would be, thinking about her as a lunatic or a psycho because she was so much more than her mental illness and so often people with mental illness are defined by it and that is what has to change i think people don't realize how hurtful language can be around this subject but i'm very excited about the thought of the photography sessions with the children i think that you know if somebody when you were eight or even a bit older had come in and said we've got this activity to do and acknowledged what you were going through. How much of a difference do you think that would have made to you? Do you think it would have changed things?
1: Oh God, that's really brought up emotion. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. It would have been, it would have made a huge difference. I think, you know, just, yeah. Having a space to, uh, to just say what you know, what's going on, and 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 to feel listened to and heard, and, and people to show interest in, you know, your perspective, it would have been massive. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was uh, very much a, a kind of um, an atmosphere of, I don't know. There was this idea that even as a seven or eight year-old you're too young to understand and it won't affect you because you're too young it's bonkers yeah, really you know, it
0: is
1: to to think that kids of, of any age are not you know absorbing what's going on around them and are not being affected by it but I guess you know that's yeah it's just generational isn't it it's just generational yeah. and that you know uh, yeah I'd like to think that kids now, will have that opportunity to be listened to and, heard and to express themselves and yeah. yeah and what i found with photography is that you know it really it really because i've i've worked i've worked as a youth worker for a bit and stuff like that specifically with kids with learning difficulties and whatnot and uh, and i was you know i used to sit and you know engage with them and you'd get nothing but if you start doing an activity they start telling you stuff yeah and it, you know, and I found that with photographs, when people are talking about a photograph that they have taken, they're much more likely to to reveal stuff about themselves because they're not answering a direct question. They're not looking at you; they're looking at the photo, Yeah. and they're saying, "Oh, this photo is you know describes this, and it yeah. blows me away." The way the stuff that people reveal about themselves mm-hmm. just through the photo that they've taken.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, absolutely. Pho- would love to do that with kids that have had similar you know experiences to me
0: the photo is the subject then not the child yeah. so they yeah yeah well, it would have been incredible i think every time i talk to somebody during this i think if only i could have spoken to you 30 years ago yeah. you know like children yeah. as well that shared lived experience amongst them and with grown-ups yeah. who've been there and it's so important that we have these services for kids it's just yeah I'm really hopeful that Absolutely. we'll get we'll get there and that it's built in yeah. it should be built in approaches to whole families should be built in yeah. to the care that's given to somebody who's living with a mental yeah. illness
1: yeah
0: so it's brilliant what you're doing I'm so thrilled about it I think it it's so impressive and I'm just so grateful that you've come to talk to me today and i hope it's not i know it's it's quite emotional i think often talking about something and you don't expect what's going to come up or how it's going to make you feel yeah yeah and so thank you for doing that with effectively a complete stranger (laughs) so (laughs) sometimes that helps too if you don't know the person it
1: does yeah i think it can do And also, you know, I know when I'm talking to you because, you know, you have your own lived experience that, you know, I'm not going to be judged. Yeah, no, thank you. thank you.
0: No, no, not at all. I can't wait to come to Charing Cross now. This is very exciting.
1: (laughs) I'll keep you pasted. Yeah,
0: please, please do. I would absolutely love to see that. I would be really interested to see what photos they take that.
1: They've done amazing stuff, wow. really amazing work, honestly. And, it, and you know, they, they've all got their own style. and Yeah, it's, it's really great. Yeah. That's amazing. we will be well seeing. Right,
0: well, I'll look forward to meeting you in person then.
1: Yeah, likewise. That'll
0: be brilliant. Thank you so much, John, honestly. And You're welcome. And speak to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you so much again to John for chatting with me today and sharing his story. Make sure you check out his work www.iamjohnreese.com This has been My Family, Mental Illness and Me. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget we would love you to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes. Please share these stories with anyone you think might need to hear them. You can help bring talking about mental illness out of the shadows. If you're experiencing any of the issues discussed in this podcast, please know that you can get in touch with the charity, Our Time. Our Time provides support to thousands of children and young people who have parents or guardians dealing with mental illness. It's ourtime.org.uk or at Our Time Charity on social media. If you feel like you're struggling with mental health or you've been affected by anything in this episode... It's really important that you speak to someone. There are links to help in the show notes, but you can also contact your GP, call the Samaritans on 116 123 or contact Childline on 0800 1111. My family, mental illness and me is Made for Our Time by Spoken Media. The production team are Patrick Wallace and Dave Howard. Original music composed by Joel Cox. Produced by The Spoken Media.